to episode 44 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. In Germaine Delac's short film, The Smiling Madame Boudet, which she directed in 1923, a wife is beleaguered by a husband with black teeth who takes a perverse thrill in playing Russian roulette. His dramatics with the gun are a way to control and torture his unhappy wife. Whenever his wife insists on acting like an independent person, he takes a revolver from his desk, aims at his temple, and pulls the trigger. The madam in question lacks the ability to even say where the bowl of flowers goes on the table. She's held hostage to a madman with a gun in her own home. The natural remedy for her predicament is to load the pistol with a live round and end his sadistic game once and for all. As you watch him aim the gun at his head, it's only natural to think, hey, let me help you with that, and put him out of his misery. We could talk about what the husband's gun fetish suggests about his deficiencies in the bedroom, as our heroine indulges in fantasy that points out her lack of sexual fulfillment. But as horrible as the wife's lot is, at least the husband with the rotten teeth keeps the gun pointed at his own head. What do we do in an early scene of If I Were Free when the gun is pointed at Irene Dunn? Irene Dunn's husband is played by Nils Ister, an actor who had the command, the range, to play swoon merchants as well as monsters. I could write an aria about his cheekbones and ice blue eyes. But the horror of their first scene together for If I Were Free from 1933 remains a standout in a chapter of indignities women have suffered on screen because of contemptible men. And why does Nils Ister, playing Tono Kasanov, hold his wife at gunpoint? Tono wields the gun in order to force Irene Sarah to accompany him to his lover's house in Cannes. It wouldn't look proper, he says, for him to stay there on his own. He needs Sarah in the house so he can conduct his affair without harming his lover's reputation. In other words, he compels Irene Dunn's character to accept humiliation while he makes love to another woman under the same roof. Sarah fails to react with fear in this scene, which offers a pretty clear indication that he's pulled this trick before. She calls his bluff finally, telling him to go on and shoot, why doesn't he, or put the fool thing away. He threatens to send her to hell, but wearily, Sarah tells him that's where she's already been for the three years they've been married. Tono continues his tirade. He says witheringly, who would care to be found dead in a ditch with you? Let's leave aside the odd measure of a woman's allure for a moment. Dead in a Ditch misses the mark for ideal romance, or even those occasions when we throw caution to the wind for lust. Nevertheless, it's wounding. Tono levels the worst against her, that no man would lose the run of himself over Sarah. I haven't been more ready to light a torch and gather a mob since that time Fred McMurray ran off to New York City and left Carol Lombard behind, 
the woman who made him, while he lived the high life with Dorothy L'Amour and Swing High, Swing Low. In a very short scene, Tono succeeds in being so completely loathsome that an audience pretty much demands Sarah take up with another man as soon as possible. It wouldn't be the first time, nor the last, that viewers watch Irene Dunn absorb a mighty blow from an unworthy man. John M. Stahl's huge box office sensation Backstreet from 1932 set the bar high for melodrama in women's pictures. It was remade twice in 1941 with Margaret Sullivan and in 1961 with Susan Hayward. Irene Dunn may be best known for her screwball gems such as Theodora Goes Wild and The Awful Truth, but she could occupy genres as effortlessly as the way she wears her fur collar slung over one shoulder in this picture. Before she mastered pratfalls and hijinks, she was the queen of melodrama. And unlike Margaret Sullivan, her sister in the genre, who remained stoic and always looked as though she would remain bulletproof, no matter what a man did to her, Irene Dunn showed audiences a vulnerable woman who might actually break under the strain. For example, that moment in Backstreet when John Bowles tells her about the holiday in Europe that they're taking, and she finally realizes how cruel he is by not including her in the first-person plural. The look on her face spells the void, a long tunnel of loneliness and despair. Her eyes empty of this world, her shoulders sag. I struggle to find a more palpable vision of emotional wreckage on screen. She's evacuated her body and the room in the scene, leaving behind only a husk of her former self. In No Other Woman from 1933, written by Wanda Tuchuk, Irene holds her head up after newfound wealth leads her husband Charles Bickford to carry on an affair with Guili Andre. And in The Silver Cord from the same year, Jane Murphy's script has Irene fighting over her husband, Joel McRae, only this time the other woman is his mother, played by Laura Hope Cruz. The following year, Irene did This Man is Mine, another screenplay by Jane Murphy, where Ralph Bellamy cheats on her with Constance Cummings, and Irene salvages her self-esteem from the ash can of marital humiliation. Irene did many standout melodramas about women ill-treated and disappointed by marriage before she stepped into the buoyant screwball waters. What lifts If I Were Free above other melodramas leading up to Irene's classic John M. Stahl production, Magnificent Obsession, in 1935, is the lifeline she grabs onto once she decides suicide isn't the answer. Irene's character, Sarah Kazanov, does not fall apart. Instead, she goes into business for herself. If only we had a whole picture of Irene as a shop owner and decorator. Another thing that makes this film worth your time is because it's a pre-code, Irene can make the decision to have a relationship with a married man and escape punishment. She's still a good woman, even if the censor said otherwise the following year. In 1934, when the production code hit woman's pictures like an anvil on the head. Back to that opening scene. After her louse of a husband gives the guest the hi-hat to run off to his mistress in Cannes, Sarah exudes plenty of false bravado. 
Once the guests are at the door, it's easy to see how every move she makes is a performance designed to smooth over the ugly reality of her life with Tono. A happily married couple, Hector and Jewel, played by Henry Stevenson and Vivian Tobin, enter with a tag-along Gordon Evers, played by Clive Brooke. Irene signals Sarah's unhappiness by fidgeting with her gown. She keeps adjusting the sleeves, pulling them up over her shoulders, wary of how low the gown dips in the back. She feels naked, exposed, ill at ease in the slinky gown that's made for a woman without a care in the world. She would probably rather dive under a blanket and worry over her husband's infidelities. Sarah has more trouble than she can handle. She tried saying it aloud that her husband held her by gunpoint, but it sounds so outlandish. Who would believe her? Because Hector and Jewel are in love, they assume that every other couple floats on a similar cloud of bliss. Happy people react to other people's misery as though it were a foreign language they could not read. Clive Brook only meets her for the first time here in the hotel room, but suddenly he awakens from his boozily remote state. No longer a somnambulist who circles the cafes for another round of martinis, he notices her distress when no one else does. Gordon Evers can smell hopelessness that lurks beneath the French perfume Sarah wears. It's a familiar scent. He recognizes a fellow citizen of hell. When Gordon pushes aside a throw pillow and finds the gun that Sarah hid there, it confirms a tortured soul, someone who shares his despair. Clive Brooke does a marvelous thing as Gordon Evers. He stops feeling sorry for himself. He tries to help Sarah. Gordon coaxes Sarah out to a nightclub. Why not commiserate? Both are made prisoner by an unhappy marriage, and so they turn to each other. In the morning, she gains clarity and perspective on a Parisian rooftop. From their position high above the street, it's easier to make things seem smaller, less significant. Why not divorce Tono, Gordon asks. She can join him in London. Gordon asks if she can do anything. Sarah grabs onto something. She used to be an interior decorator until Tono took it up. In other words, Tono took her livelihood and sense of purpose along with her dignity. He took everything from her and gave nothing in return. The next scene jumps to the front signage, Sarah Casanova Interiors. Sarah pays the tradesman out on the street who did the lettering for the sign and admires her own name on the building. She looks every bit the business in a knee-length billowy white smock and a little dust-cap turban that matches. Underneath the smock, Sarah wears a smart knit set over a three-quarter length hemline. No one looked better in that skirt length than Irene Dunn. Her skirt said she was a capable woman who could patch up any emotional divots strewn in her path by men. She bustles around a darling shop rearranging the bric-a-brac for sale. Some of the merchandise, such as the ship with multiple sails that she moves across the room, seem like masculine decor, but most of it seems chosen for women. On display are Dresden figurines, delicate porcelain, an interesting vase, small pictures for a certain little nook of a room, 
And in the back, she unpacks volumes, including Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Hasn't she just spent three years catering to a man? Maybe Clive Brooks Gordon was onto something when he said on the rooftop during sunrise that he knew people who wanted to have their houses done over to say nothing of their lives. Sarah Kazanov has the business acumen to make over a room or a house. She applies the same principle and redesigns her own life. That's just what she does with that shop. She finally has a room of one's own, a blend of mercantile and private quarters to set up space as she sees fit. It's an ideal spot, bright and airy with large windows, an intimate parlor, and a little garden with a high fence out back. You know she can make a go of interior shop because Sarah has good taste. Nothing is too overdone about her. When she's discussing her official status with the maid, Mrs. Gill, played by Tempe Piggott, the elderly Cockney woman first quips something about her boss's husband being dead. Sarah corrects her, saying he isn't dead. She's just divorced. Mrs. Gill replies that all women around here have husbands. It's a brief exchange that makes an important distinction between tradition and modernity. Women of Mrs. Gill's generation needed a husband. Women of Sarah's generation do not. She can forge her own path instead of remaining shackled to a monster. Marriage seems so very last century with Sarah. When we look at the two women, it's like an old-fashioned antique from the past, like something in Sarah's shop that a woman could choose over and pass over if she so desired. Sarah may be modern and independent, but it does not mean that her life is trouble-free. During the carnival scene, for example, Sarah basks in a successful introduction to Gordon's mother, played by Laura Hope Cruz, a grand dowager of women's pictures from the era. She's not playing the mother from hell who had romantic inclinations of her own sons, as she did in The Silver Cord. Here, she's kind and sensible. As Gordon's mother, she knows how unhappy he has been. Sarah floats around in a slim-cut frock with buttons up the front that is as fresh as spring heather, and agrees to pitch in and help run one of the charity concessions. Behind the counter she goes to, her friend Jewel greets her with a bit of gossip. Did she hear who Gordon has taken up with? Some woman who runs a junk shop? Sarah blanches as pale as the dress she wears. Clearly, Jewel has no idea the gossip she shares is about Sarah. What cuts Sarah to the bone isn't the opinion that she isn't good enough for Gordon, as would often be the case in woman's pictures. The remark that wounds is the description of her pride and joy as a mere junk shop, as though Sarah were a pawnbroker hawking worthless rubbish. Even with her friends, the people who care about Sarah, they can deliver a devastating blow. Gutted, Sarah leaves the carnival at once. Tono rears his good-looking but vicious head once more. When we see him darken her shop door, he's even wearing a monocle, in case we've forgotten what a stinker he is from the earlier scene. You knew he would turn up again like a bad penny. Truth told, he's a delectable villain, much like Conrad Veidt in A Woman's Face or Charles Boyer in Gaslight. Tono offers cutting remarks about Sarah's shop. 
he offers to sell her some of his pieces, overpriced, of course, in a thinly disguised form of extortion. As far as the leading man goes, Clive Brooke is in no stretch of the imagination a swoon merchant, but he is utterly believable as a man who has given up hope and suddenly revives when he meets the right woman. His early gambit about needing to get to the bank, which was really just a ruse to move in circles from one martini to the next, was as dry as Melba toast. In melodrama, people only drink when they're unhappy. That's certainly the case for Gordon Evers. Once Sarah comes into his life, he doesn't touch a drop. I believe him when he says if he did anything, meaning made a success of his career as a barrister, it's because of Sarah. His character shows us a man in earnest who hides in cafes and trades droll quips because the sorrow runs so deep. Sarah Casanova brought him back to life. Themes from If I Were Free recur later in two of Irene Dunn's best films from the decade. In Love Affair from 1939, when Irene Dunn is alone on the ocean liner deck, looking out to sea with Charles Boyer, it echoes the earlier rooftop scene that she shared with Clive Brooke. The ship and the roof stage a space that sets the lovers apart. Both scenes pair lovers who cling to each other in a moment of respite from regular society to take a moment to mull over what their lives could be like. Both are amongst the finest two-against-the-world scenes in cinema. They must figure out how to exchange one life for another. And again in 1939, with Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer, for When Tomorrow Comes, at some point they have to admit that love doesn't conquer all and that the ties that bind persist. I won't spoil the end for you. Warner Archive has a beautiful print on DVD, and the Russians have it online as usual. I'm mortified that it's taken me so long to do an episode on Irene Dunn. She ranks as one of my all-time favorite sassmouth dames. Irene Dunn's moral compass was as true as sunrise, and her ability to surprise you no less regular. She told women in the audience that if she could absorb the slings and arrows from living in a man's world, so could we. What couldn't she do? She moved as effortlessly from melodrama to screwball comedy as though she stepped from bath to shower. I am fortified after watching one of her pictures. Thanks for listening. Join me next time when I talk about The Jungle Princess, Dorothy L'Amour's star vehicle from 1936. Thanks very much.